We need to think way beyond the word health. I mean, we're talking about going to Mars and space, and which we should. But what's the equivalent vision for the human condition? That is the vision for health. If we don't have sort of joy and love and enjoyment for everything as our goal, then we're missing the boat on what health's really about. This is The Other 80, and I'm Claudia Williams. On this podcast, we talk about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. We spend one-fifth of the nation's GDP on health care. That's $14 trillion. And most of that money goes to providing medical services, which, as it turns out, only determine about 20% of overall health. So we're here to talk about the other 80%. Access to nutritious food, our relationships with each other, safe and comfortable housing, and so much more. For this first season of The Other 80, I've invited some of the most brilliant minds working in this space to join me in conversation. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Minnie Callon. She is the Vice Dean of Health Ecosystem at Dell Medical School, one of the newest med schools in the nation. Dr. Callon is leading a portfolio of work addressing Dell's fourth pillar, building health outside the clinic. In this interview, Dr. Callan and I focused on the ecosystem change needed to support whole person health and the role of medical schools and doctors in helping create this future. She talked about Factor Health, a partnership with social service organizations and health plans to demonstrate the impact of services delivered outside the clinic. A note before we begin that during this interview, there was construction work being done outside of Dr. Callan's window, just in case you hear some bumps and scrapes. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Minnie Callan, neuroscientist, behavior change expert, and health ecosystem pioneer. I was particularly intrigued by your title as Vice Dean of Health Ecosystem. I'm curious what that role means and how you got specifically into that role, because I think you were at the medical school for a while before you assumed that role. Yeah, so I, I'm a founding vice dean for Dell Med. So there's not, there are not many situations where you can sort of pick up and start an academic medical center from scratch. And we were in the fortunate position to ask well, if health is the goal, what about our structure needs to change so that we can better achieve it? Because to think that we keep our academic medical structure exactly the same, but focus on health, it didn't make much sense. And we had the opportunity to change it since we were still a new organization. And so that then created this notion of a fourth pillar. So generally in academic medicine, you have three primary pillars of activity, three missions. One is our clinical mission, which includes the clinical enterprise and the business of delivering clinical care. And then uh, you also have education and research. But if health is the goal, what kinds of work, what kinds of innovation might not be actively prioritized if we did not give it a better seat at the table? And so that then led us to create a fourth pillar. 
And the, the notion of the health ecosystem, this is what we called it at the time, was really saying if we don't think about the ecosystem that's necessary to deliver health and how we can identify it, work more closely with it, uh, leverage it, then we'd have missed the boat. And so that's where the, the position of vice dean of health ecosystem came about. So, so the, the role really now focuses on building up a more structural prioritization of health beyond the clinic uh, and asks, you know, what does it look like? Who's doing it? How do we celebrate them? How do we find out what they need? How do we advance the field? Because this is not just like the field is waiting there and we just have to meet the field. The field itself is being created. And so uh, and we call this fourth pillar now just because we love new words. You saw it with health ecosystem. We call this fourth pillar healthscape, which is the pillar then, that I am trying to support and, and advance health in the landscape of life. I love that. And I think, you know, I often have heard people talk about the triple aim being the quadruple aim and adding the drivers of health and community health. So I think this is a really interesting, comparable uh, move. And the timing is perfect to talk about Healthscape because you guys hosted a really large convening on Healthscape. And I'd love to just hear a little bit about that event and who was brought together and what it was like. But also, was there something really encouraging and something else that might have been really challenging or discouraging that came out of that? It was our second annual Healthscape Symposium. So this is still all very new. Um, the first thing I'll say is uh, the term Healthscape and, and the way we've structured it, it's, it's not without controversy, even within our communities, right? So, and I want to just address that right up front. So the most important thing is there is definitely no way we are addressing health without changing and influencing our structure. I don't think anyone can disagree with that. Uh, the existing structures don't suit the outcomes we're trying to affect. Now, whether we call that the drivers of health, social determinants of health, uh, we used to call it community impact. Uh, we're not calling it healthscape. I really don't care. It happens to be the term that we used um, and, and we need something as a token to name it. But I would say yes, yes, and yes to all those other terms as well. And part of the reason, uh, and this is one of the things that ended up being good to just be frank about in, in, in setting up this conference, is that the boundaries of this work are not clear. The boundaries of our role in academic medicine as we engage in this work are not clear. For example, public health has been working in this space forever with some you know great results so so the space isn't new per se what is new however is the focus from academic medicine or medicine in general which is tied to this massive healthcare enterprise and turning its 4 trillion dollar attention to this space that is what's new and that is our unique opportunity to leverage the strengths we have uh, and our position in this space to then ask how do we take all of that momentum and some of its inertia assets within healthcare and, and really focus them on the results that matter, which will lead us to a place where we'll be focusing a lot on non-medical uh, types of interventions. So that's sort of the setup. And we, I say this to, to you and our listeners, but also because I use this with our own colleagues, as well as others across the university and the entrepreneurial and other ecosystem here that we invited to this conference. And so the conference, the symposium was a chance for us to really 
put our stake in the ground to say this center of academic medicine in Austin does consider that housing, jobs, income, food, social connection are influencers of health in significant ways and in ways, in such significant ways that your academic medical institution, Austin, needs to focus on it and is focusing on it. So I think the diversity of those we engaged was was exactly um, where I hoped we would land and, and we did. And it showed that we could be a part of a conversation that in many cases we were not leading, which by the way is another trait of this work. Because if you're dealing with health outside the clinic, medicine is not king or queen quite often, right? So, but, but we have a very important seat at the table, but it is simply a seat at the table. So we had, for example, a great session on telehealth. Telehealth, go like, well, what could be more medicine and medical than that? Uh, firstly, I'm not saying telemedicine, I am saying telehealth. But, but what you get when you ask questions about access and health and how that is impacted by the, uh, the acceleration of the adoption of telehealth, and you ask that, to the, the sort of intellectual milieu uh, and to the, the innovation of a professor from the School of Journalism and Media, through a nursing student, through a technologist, and through a sociologist who in her other life studies the impact of work on the body, on the physical body, and you bring those people together, you get a very different exploration of telehealth than you would imagine. And the exploration you get is the first questions they're thinking about is, oh, wait a minute, what are if, if we can access medicine from, from anywhere now, what does it open up in terms of new settings, new spaces, and new power dynamics? And, and how can we maximize the benefits to our patients by being really creative around the spaces and the structures of those spaces from where people come in? I think you're underscoring something really important, which is if we have the clear goal in mind, which is health, how do we then ask, how do we use all of these changes going on to drive in that direction and, 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 and build that in a way that we're the ecosystem builders, not the, the top down managers of that. So there are a lot of different, um, changes in perspective that I think are embedded in what you're doing. One thing that you've launched that kind of uh, brings these ideas together is Factor Health. First, I thought if you could just describe what Factor Health is and and why you developed that, and then we'll talk a little bit more about how that manifests in, in the work you're doing. Super, and thank you. Yeah, so Factor Health was born from frustration. <laughs> it's always a good place for something to be born. From. But the frustration was, in my head, I could see the possibilities of health outside the clinic. I can see, I can see that there is so much we can do in structured ways to meaningfully impact health outcomes, clinically relevant health outcomes, uh, without even touching the clinical enterprise. And the reason that's important is because I've spent all of this time in my career, in my life, being within the beast um, and working to change. And, I, and I'm still doing that. But in doing that, you also get really up close and personal on the inertia of this complicated system, uh, this Gordian knot, the system that just won't break apart to allow room for innovation. And so Factor Health came with this view and said, well, what if we just start outside and try to minimize any interaction 
with the healthcare system, but deliver results that are not just equivalent to, but better than any healthcare system can deliver. And, and that was the, the vision with which we started. And so I thought the best way to do this would be to actually put it in action, deliver results, and then people would not just nod, but really get that you can create this, this kind of really top-notch um, care environment by starting outside the clinic and only referring back to healthcare only when it was necessary. Go see a physician, absolutely, but only do it when you really need that physician. And there are benefits all around, of course. So that's sort of where Factor Health was born from this notion of really demonstrating in action what an alternate model could look like. What I'm hearing also is, you know, we're all in the business of trying to change the system but sometimes that can become like the starting place that never ends because there's debates and debates and debates about, well, how are we going to do that? And what about this other thing? And this was a way to just say, okay, forget your debates. Let's just see if it can happen. It's almost like a MVP within, within this broader academic setting. So anyone who's, who's in technology knows an MVP is a minimum viable product, which is essentially a way to, instead of studying things through questions, study things through action. Uh, look at what, what the results are from a, a small action that can be iterated and improved over time. Maybe take us through one of the projects that you've been working on uh, through Factor Health and talk about what it is you, who you went to as that external organization, what you were trying to demonstrate and how it's gone. So the first thing is, because our, our goal is to change what and how the healthcare system pays for what works. That's what we want. We want the $4 trillion invested in whatever works. And frankly, if, if anything we're doing doesn't work, don't pay for it. But if something does work, we would like the healthcare system to expend its resources on what works for people. So with that in mind, uh, we, it, we always generally start with a payer. Uh, we understand because we come from within the health system that, you know, getting the health system to pay for what matters is no easy task. Um, at one level, you know, the easiest thing people would, would rely on is to say, well, why don't you show that you can create a business outcome of, you know, an ROI or something like that? Sure. But again, if you're within the health system, you realize that actually even an ROI is not sufficient. The mechanisms to pay are simply not there. So it's not even as simple as saying, I did better, it costs you know, the same or less. That's like great and you can get on a panel or give a talk, <laughs> but, uh, but it doesn't actually move the dial. Um, because at the same time, the, the payer organizations have this massive sort of infrastructure and incentives that just simply don't align with paying now for the thing you just showed worked. So we have you know, these two levels of challenges and we know that. And so in order to really change the, the payment mechanism and to make sure that whatever we were able to show could be paid for, we have to go to those uh, in payer organizations and really find out where they're having the biggest pain point. And we're really interested in hard, hard, hard problems for them. Because it, if it's hard enough, then maybe, maybe if we're able to show them a, that we can deliver results, there's enough impetus to actually change some of the mechanics of how they pay to actually pay for this result and sustain in the future. So one, we start with payers in the beginning. Second, we don't assume that anything's a given. Of course, food is good for health. Who could disagree with that? But I'll tell you right now in our, in our assessment of the evidence that if you're 
trying to answer the question that, say, a Medicaid MCO in Texas is trying to answer. And they're trying to answer not the question, is food good for health? That's not the question they're trying to answer. They're trying to answer, what do I need to pay for that will give me a result that matters within the time frame and the population and the conditions that actually are part of my business? And that's a very different kind of question. And when you start looking at that question and you look at the evidence that we've accrued, it's actually hard to point to specific work that ties to those parameters in a way where you go, okay, yes, this can work. You can say there's suggestive things, but there isn't. So we knew we had to generate, either find evidence that already exists or generate evidence that matches the timeframes, the populations and conditions that are of interest to the people that would be footing the bill. So we didn't come to it saying we're interested in food. We didn't come to it saying we're interested in social connection. We didn't come to it saying we want to do research. We actually end up doing pretty, you know, hardcore research out in the community, but we didn't end up, that's not where we started. We just want to do whatever is necessary, no more, no less, to then eventually get a payer to pay. So uh, we had a meals program that we were doing in, in March of 2020, which we could not start because March of 2020, we all remember March of 2020. And when we couldn't do our meals program, we uh, had already been talking about, you know, if you're going to be anchored outside the clinic, what's human that can be that is really important in health. And we were focused on the role of empathy and listening. And so when we couldn't deliver meals to our Meals and Wheels participants because of COVID, we realized, oh my God, these are the very people that are going to be in most need of connection. So how can we address that? And so that was a start. We did a literally a six-week rapid cycle innovation, thinking about what we could do. And we put together a program of telephone calls delivered by lay people. At that time, younger lay people volunteers. Now we're actually hiring people there of all ages. And we have a protocol of, of connection that allows folks that are not healthcare professionals to really engage with, listen to. And, and as we showed in that first program, we got some stellar results. We, we definitely expected that we would get results on loneliness. That's what we had begun our program based on. Uh, what we, you know, loneliness was, has been getting a lot of attention correctly. So, um, but we also assessed depression and anxiety. We put this randomized control trial together. And in four weeks, we got huge results on loneliness. This was a very lonely group of people. The folks that we included in our trial ended up not on average being depressed or anxious. And yet we saw meaningful and statistically significant improvements in depression and anxiety and clinical measures of depression and anxiety. That really turned this around for us because so we started, you know, started talking to uh, various health insurer partners. And I'll tell you, loneliness, they're all intrigued by. But you, you tell them that you can actually influence depression um, in some meaningful ways. And they are absolutely interested because they don't exactly know how they can't give you the numbers per se, but they understand that mental health conditions and depression being one example really impacts everything for all of their patients. And so uh, that has taken off and we are in the midst of a second trial, but we're also working with a range of folks to start figuring out what, what an implementation model at scale could look like for a health caller driven entity that can help uh, anyone taking on risk. And so we were literally poised to begin a meals program to look to see whether medically tailored meals um, could help better manage uh, diabetes for a relatively low-income, food-insecure, homebound group of adults. 
And we're going to compare that to a waiting list control and measure hemoglobin A1C. So we could also start developing some quality metrics were this to be a healthcare program. Um, couldn't do it then. We've now begun it, um, and it's just begun uh, this month uh, with our partner, Meals and Wheels of Central Texas. But here, the question now has changed uh, because we're no longer, you know, two and a half years ago when we were going to start it. And the question now is no longer just a simple comparison, but what we've noticed is that the industry has begun paying for uh, food, uh, for meals, for health. So insurance companies have come to us, they're going to others. They are looking to see what does it take to do this? What do we get for it? So the question, the simple question no longer was that useful. Instead, we realized the direction the, the industry was going into was, was actually starting to find people that could deliver. And who can deliver meals for health? Well, there's actually a whole industry sitting around ready to jump on this because if healthcare says they're ready to pay money, there's an industry because there were people that are already creating meals and delivering, usually through drop shipment, you know, frozen or refrigerated packs. And that, that industry obviously is ready to go. That's a great thing because it means you actually have the implementation on. So what we want to do is to really now, with this momentum, get the healthcare industry to focus on what are the results we should be seeking. And let's test drop shipment, which is sort of one model against a daily delivery model. Let's look at costs, let's look at outcomes, and let's compare that to doing nothing. And that will help us better identify the nature of the program that should be paid for. That program has a payer partner, uh, which is two Medicaid MCOs here in Texas that are very interested in figuring out whether this works or not. It has a, a delivery partner. In this case, it's a Meals on Wheels that is creating uh, this program in their kitchens and, and will help us compare nutritionally similar meals. And we have a whole bunch of evidence to build off. That's a classic factor health program. And in this case, we managed to get third-party funds, uh, a, a real coalition, uh, the Episcopal Health Foundation that funds us uh, and all of the platform at Factor Health. But we've also been able to pull St. David's Foundation here that's helping to fund the meals uh, part of it, which is very hard to fund otherwise, um, uh, and a range of other uh, partners that is making all of this come together here in Central Texas. I'm curious, you, you mentioned that when you started in 2020 and had to kind of put it on the shelf for a while, you, you thought the job was to convince them of the need. And then by the time 2022 came along, things had shifted. What shifted? You know, that's a great question. I, I, I thought it was um, striking, actually, that I would say a year ago. So Texas's system uh, is to, they put out RFPs for Medicaid MCOs, and they bid every so often. Several of the states do that. And so, firstly, the conversation about social determinants of health and it being relevant for healthcare has changed. So there are many, if every, every large insurer has some kind of strategic focus at the national level, at the state level. And we see these dynamics. So sometimes these, these conversations begin at the state level. And then you'll find the national players come in of the same organization, right? They have their state organization, they have their national, um, and then they'll develop a national strategy, which is sometimes better than, sometimes worse than uh, the state policy. But we started seeing that just the conversation around this had changed. And I do think COVID was a big part of it as well, although it was accelerating for a while. Um, and so when our Texas, uh, uh, in this case, Medicaid organizations are getting a certain kind of push nationally, then they start paying attention in a different way. That was one. But secondly, because of that as well, 
the Texas RFPs were coming out for specific populations. For example, for the older, more vulnerable, it's called STAR Plus, the, the STAR Plus program. And, and they started putting in requirements in the RFPs. They like, tell us what you're doing, that's socially innovative, et cetera. Um, and so that's, so we started actually getting approached by Medicaid MCOs saying, could you put a program together of meals, which we thought was so striking because we had not even done the program that was going to deliver results that you normally want to look at and say, oh, yes, it works. And here we are. And, and the reason was, I mean, the reality is some of the prior work that has already been done around the impact of meals and hospitalizations, et cetera, had shown that it's going to have an effect. Um, they needed this extra push from this, and this time it was through the RFP structure, to the policy structure to say, okay, we better be doing something. Or the national organization is like, well, what are you guys doing? And are you competing with your other, you know, fellow Medicaid organizations? And so that just created this momentum. They came to us, even though we had not delivered results. It doesn't mean the results aren't important. They are, but there was no longer a question of whether this was a, a game to be played or not. This is definitely a game that they needed to be a part of. Now our opportunity got to be the next level opportunity, which is they are definitely in the game. But if we don't catch it and sort of make sure we're really focusing it on quality, on outcomes, um, we're going to miss the real opportunity. And so that then shifted the design when we were able to finally stop, restart this program. I don't know if you were following it. I, I went down a little bit of a Twitter rabbit hole this weekend around this whole question of should the healthcare system have a formalized role in, as you said so beautifully, turning the $4 trillion towards health. And a lot of folks were expressing concern that, you know, managed care, they can't even get quality right. And we still have all these access problems. Let's not put another thing on their plates. Let's like have them focus on the things that they're already supposed to be doing. And yes, we need to deliver these social services, but should it really go through that route? And my answer was a little bit similar to yours, which is to say, this is the, this is what, where we are guys. Um, and, but I'm curious, but the concerns were around, will we medicalize these services? Uh, will they, these organizations like MCOs be in a good position to manage this overall task? Um, should, should they be just given the freedom to focus on the things that are already not 100% right yet, which is like quality and things like that? I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. Um, I didn't see the, the Twitter conversation, but it's a really, I'm glad you surfaced it. It's a very important, um, I think it's very important in, in what it muddles together. One of the, 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 the challenges when we talk to, especially my medical colleagues, is, is around this notion of role. Like, should we be doing this? Is it our job? Isn't it someone else's job? Are we the right people? All this stuff. Good question. So the first thing is, the one thing that I know is we are attached to the most resources, that $4 trillion. I, no one else is 20% of the GDP. Public health is like 0.5%, I think, um, is the last time I checked. So I think the confusion we make is we conflate the resources, those assets, the fact that 20% of the GDP is captured by this industry and we have to turn it, that's one. And then the second is the skills, the expertise, the apparatus that we have to address problems. So I think those, I do think healthcare should focus on what healthcare is good at. And I do think that healthcare tomorrow is not going to become, you know, uh, for example, a food deliverer at scale, like maybe Meals on Wheels, that knows how to deal with older people at home and has been doing this forever. I wouldn't want healthcare to become that. But 
part of healthcare is the payment, it's the coordination, all of that has to be optimized so that we can create space for this other, for this other environment. And so I think separating out the assets we are tied to, the resources we are tied to, that we have a responsibility to figure out how to focus them on the right things. But we, generally speaking, I mean, the healthcare enterprise doesn't have to be the one implementing. And I think actually Factor Health is a beautiful answer to that question in many ways. Oh, to wrap up, I have two standard questions I ask my guests. And the first is, what's a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? Um, well, I'm trying to remember the specific scenarios that generated this leadership lesson, but they've probably blocked all of them out. So I'll just say that it's, it's a strange thing to say, but I, I have been really relying on this notion of going small to go big. And it came from, you know, mistakes I've made in getting too far ahead of myself with um, abstractions um, and finding that actually the way you can make the biggest things happen is if at every point you catch yourself and go right back to, are my feet on the ground? Who am I talking to? Um, and in fact, a lot of my physician leaders that I admire and respect, um, they do that, right? So they have a practice and they try very hard to actually make sure that they practice with people on a regular basis while they also, you know, launch a company and, you know, uh, lead an academic medical institution, et cetera. So in the same way, um, I think this go- notion of going small to go big, and by going small, I mean where every person matters and you look at something from the perspective of that person and as you start flying out, you go pull yourself back in and say, for real? Have I really listened? <laughs> it's a little bit more about the practice of driving for big change, I guess. Um, but that has been running through my mind recently. That's reminding me, and it's timely, of Paul Farmer's the book Mountains Beyond Mountains and talking about just that incredible focus on each patient and delivering the best possible care and very challenging surroundings and how many questions he got about, can we really do that? Can't we like scale this back a little? And so it's sort of like, it just is a a reality check in the most kind of fundamental way is what I'm doing going to actually deliver something valuable for this human that's sitting in front of me. I think the vision is important because it can help be a container for the change we want to see. But change is by definition, one foot in front of the other, right? And then sometimes you see scaling effects that you didn't expect. And that's awesome. But uh, the last question is, is there a question you wish I had asked that I didn't? And what would be your answer? Maybe a question now going small to big. The question of, of vision, you know, like, so we are here talking about health and healthcare. And I think a question of vision is good for all of us in health and healthcare. And the reason I'd love for you to ask that, um, I'm going to play the question back. You, I'm going to assume you've asked me that, is because I actually think that we need to think way beyond the word health. Uh, I mean, we're talking about going to Mars and space, and which we should, but what's the equivalent vision for 
the human condition. That is the vision for health. So I don't think it's just good health for all. I think it has to be joy and, um, of course, dignity is sort of the, the, the baseline. But I think if we don't have sort of joy and um, love and enjoyment for everything as our goal, then we're missing the boat on what health's really about. I mean, why are we in good health? We're in good health so we can live the most fulfilling lives that we want. And, and as we, you know, get into the, the future of, you know, a lot of new automation, a lot of changes to a society, I think we should put our sights squarely on the human condition and making the human condition, you know, creating this, the environment where we can achieve the maximum as humans for each and every person. That to me is uh, a vision worth putting that foot, one foot in front of the other four. <laughs> you just gave me shivers. That was, that was beautiful. I hope we have a chance to meet uh, in real life sometime soon. It's a little ironic that our first conversation was a podcast recording, but <laughs> it was wonderful. I enjoyed it. And I am so appreciative of your time. Same here. Same here. Thank you for thinking of me and our work here and uh, looking forward to hearing this when it goes live. Thanks so much. A big thank you to Dr. Minnie Cowan for joining me to discuss health as an ecosystem. Her understanding of ecosystem change is so evident in how she approaches her work. Other takeaways from this conversation, Dr. Callan paints a compelling picture of what is possible if we think about health broadly, and it cemented for me that our goal should be nothing short of big and visionary. Our job is to help people and communities thrive, but we need to take it one step at a time, the only way change is possible. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. I've included some important resources in the show notes that you might find interesting, including more information on Dell Medical School's commitment to health outside the clinic and on Factor Health's loneliness study. There is more information on my background, the podcast, and our guests on our website, theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. <laughs>